0: I had a war chest of about three and a half million dollars. Mark Martin is strapping into his trolley. Based on what we had going on, I had enough money to do it for two years. Mark Martin from Beach Gold. Bill France Jr. gave me and Mark Martin an application to the 1988 Daytona 500. And Not enough can be said for these guys that built this team from the ground up in two years. But if I didn't win a race, if I didn't show a Blue Sky to, to potential sponsors that wanted to get on board, there was an end in, in sight to my uh, to my NASCAR career. The Motor Racing Network presents. Since
1: the many hats
0: of Jack Roush. Mark Martin drives up high out of
1: turn number four, comes out of the corner, and every person in this grandstand is cheering him on. He comes down, and he will win the AC Delco 500. It has been a long, hard road for Mark Martin. I, butted head. I, know I had butted heads with Jack Roush, but I butted head with Jack a lot early in the years, but we made it. And we did it together. Jeff Burton wins at Daytona. He takes the 42nd Pepsi 400. Everything that I do in my racing and and uh, you know when my son's racing and stuff, I always wonder the decisions I'm making. Always go through my mind, what would you know what would Jack
2: do? Carl Edwards is a first-time winner in the NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series. They did not hold one thing back from me. We gave it the best effort, and I think that's very noble. And I'm honored to be associated with him. From the Motor Racing Network studios in Concord, North Carolina. Here is your host, Woody Kane. Welcome to Episode 9 of MRN Presents, The Many Hats of Jack Roush. For many years, Jack Roush has had a passion for aviation, but on April 19th, 2002, tragedy struck just two days before the Aarons 499 at Talladega Super Speedway. Another
1: one of the news stories we've been covering for you all weekend is uh, the crash uh, that involved uh, NASCAR team owner Jack Roush on Friday evening in Troy, Alabama, not too far from the speedway here. He was uh, flying a plane. It was on his birthday, and I think it's part of a sort of a birthday celebration. He was just trying out some aircraft. That's a passion of Jack's. And uh, the plane went down in a
0: lake. Well, it was my 60th birthday. And I was in Troy, Alabama, with some friends who have an airport, or they have uh, access on an airport in Troy, Alabama. And they had uh, two B-25s that were coming in from uh, from a celebration of Jimmy Doolittle's uh, flight into Tokyo, where he bombed Tokyo. He bombed Tokyo the day before I was born, in in the same year, in '42. So I was I was born the day after when he was jumping out in China and uh, evading the Japanese in China. I was born uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio. So they were celebrating, we were celebrating my birthday, but at the same time they were celebrating uh, this, the the group had two uh, B-25 Mitchells, which were the bombers that uh, Jimmy Doolittle flew into Tokyo. So they're celebrating uh, Doolittle's raid, they're they're celebrating my birthday, they're gonna cook steaks. And uh, I got there and we flew airplanes for two or three hours, I took uh, some people for a ride in the back seat of my two-seated Mustang, and uh, uh, just when the steaks are getting ready to go on the grill, they said, Jack, we got some a pr- surprise for you. They had an Air Cam, and an Air Cam is a, is a GPS modern uh, experimental airplane that, uh, that had two little Rotex a carbon fiber propeller. A, it's a high-tech uh, open cockpit two-place canoe with, uh, with uh, airplane engines on it. And uh, so they said, we want you to fly this thing before you uh, before we have stakes here. And I said, well, who's going to go with me? He said, oh, no, this is your birthday present. You fly it by yourself. And I said, well, what happens if one of these engines goes out? And they says, well, it climbs on 4,000 feet a minute on one engine, on two engines, and 2,000 feet a minute on one engine. The Engines won't be a problem. I said, well, where's the switch for the gas tank? There's, there's, no, there's no switch to turn off the fuel or turn it on. The gas tank's full, and it's, uh, you're not going to run out of gas. So I was out of questions. So I w- I did have an interest in the airplane, so I took off and flew it off one direction from the airport, and it's all woods and 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 streams and things in that part of Alabama. There's no big community around, and I I come back, oh, flew back toward the airport after I satisfied myself there was nothing in the direction I'd flown off to start with, and I could see a. Uh, airtham and houses on one side of a lake down there and I recognize it to be a, a man-made bass lake you know with uh, houses organized uh, on, on one side there was hill on one side and there was houses on the other so I envisioned that you get to have your supper and then get in their little bass boat and goes do some bass fishing before the sun went down. So I'm flying along, thinking about this, and i would flown over a set of high-tension wires uh, at the earth end, at the dam end of the, uh, of the lake. The lake was probably a uh, half mile long, three-eighths of an inch, three-eighths of a mile long. I went down at the end of the lake and pulled up to make a turnaround, and would you believe that the suckers put in a second set of high-tension wires parallel to one another, two different carriers, no balls, no reflectors, and where I was with the uh, wires, they were lost in the uh, tree line. And I pulled into the bottom wire or the ground wire on this uh, transmission line. I was probably 40 feet off the ground. The, my, the airplane would take off at 40 mile an hour and land at 40 mile an hour and cruise at 40 mile an hour. So it was a 40 mile an hour airplane. And uh, so I, I uh, pulled up in this bottom wire. The Airplane had a windscreen on it like a Harley Davidson. And so this wire started coming back the, on the windscreen. I ducked and the uh, wire cable stopped the airplane, didn't break the cable. Stopped the airplane, and, and the airplane flew directly, straight down into about uh, five foot, four foot of water. It was near the, the uh, end of the of the lake. Most of the airplane was out of the water, and uh, but I was trapped uh, with uh, the crumpled uh, nose of the airplane. My left femur was a debris refield. My left ankle was, t- was broken. The foot was turned backwards, and I had uh, had a concussion when I landed. They said they find people who drown sometimes underwater with air still in their lungs. So I was underwater. I hit my head, got a concussion. Uh, I stopped breathing, and I my lungs stayed full of air. And four or five minutes after I crashed, Sergeant Major Larry Hicks, who'd been uh, a retired uh, Sergeant Major Marine Corps, had been trained for extricating the helicopter uh, servicemen and pilots from a intercoastal waterways in Vietnam. So he'd been trained to, to go underwater and to find a seat belts and to get a person out, and he was, I crashed 100 yards from his living room.
1: Everybody pretty well knows that I was going through cancer treatments at that time, and I was sitting in a, in a lounge chair. My wife said, and I, I don't remember most of what happened, but she said I jumped out of the chair, ran across the backyard, which was kind of odd because I could barely walk across the living room up until that point but i saw him coming down the lake and i think he recognized the power lines just before he hit them and tried to pull up and when he hit the power line he flipped upside down and went in upside down in the lake that's when i went out and got in a boat that my brother had left the day before we were supposed to go fishing that day and he just couldn't make it but the boat was already in the water and I jumped in the boat and told my wife, I said, no matter what happens, I'll love you. And she looked at me like, well, okay. <laughs> she said, I said, go to the front gate, let the emergency crews in when they get here. I'm going to go see what I can do for the pilot. And went out and started doing, uh, jumping in the lake. I think it was three times, third times when I found him. But, uh, he had already fell out of the out of the aircraft, was hanging outside the aircraft underwater. And, uh, Fortunately, the Marine Corps had trained in underwater rescue, and I recognized the seatbelt that he had on because uh, you couldn't see anything at the bottom of the lake because it was really muddy. And as soon as I felt the seatbelt, I released it, and he came up, and that's when we started doing CPR on the wing.
0: He said that I popped up into his arms, and he said he saw a lot of people that like me in Vietnam. He said they were all dead. I was ashen, and I wasn't breathing. He said, turn me around, pop me on the, on the chest. He said flush color came back to my face and I uh, spit up a little blood and a little, a little uh, water. And I was breathing on one side. I had one collapsed lung, but the other lung was working okay.
1: Well, one of the things about that you understand about him is he was hanging upside down, which I think prevented a lot of the water from being inhaled. And I, I don't know much about the, the medical side of it, but I know for, that when I got him up on the wing after the third dive and started doing compressions on his chest, he spit up a bunch of blood and water, and, and and that was to be expected because of the type of injuries he had. But uh, he just, all of a sudden, I said, God, please don't take this man, and immediately he started breathing. So you'll forgive me if I get religious about this. There's more to this story than, than what the press shows.
2: Both Jack Roush and Sergeant Major Larry Hicks sustained burns to their body due to the aviation fuel in the water.
1: Uh, I I lost... Uh, a lot of function in my left lung. It burned burned the lung tissue in my left lung. And I got a call from UAB in Birmingham, one of the doctors that was up there. And he was telling me, he so said, Jack's got a heck of a, a red rash all over his body. I said, well, so do I. But the, the emergency room doctor said it was due to the aviation gas. And so I had uh, first and second degree burns on my body, uh, from a chest down to probably my navel. And as soon as I told them that, they knew how to,
2: to treat Jack. After being revived, Jack Roush's issues didn't end as there was some confusion with medical personnel.
0: I, I remember being in the, the, they put me on a, on a little boat uh, and Floated me to the shore, waded me to the shore, put me in the, the, the uh, ambulance. I remember being in the ambulance, everything was going just fine. They got the, I me in the emergency room. They tried to take my money in my pants, and I felt, a fight broke out. And uh, so, they decided to give me a paralyzation drug called Pavilon. So, they gave me this Pavilon, which put me down. It's a paralyzation drug, they put me down. And they, an hour later, they decided that, uh, that, they, that I might wake up and I might still be mad because of my pants and my, my shoes were gone and uh, my money was gone. And uh, so they gave me another shot. It turns out that the second shot in that circumstance should have been one-tenth the, the uh, volume of the, fr- of the first shot. You should never have the same strength uh, that within that time frame, two shots in a row. So they gave me enough uh, pavillon that might have killed me, they said. And then uh, an hour or so later, they thought that I wouldn't make it through the night because I wasn't doing well with my one lung. And so they, uh, they gave me a third shot to put me on a helicopter to send me to Birmingham to see what would happen. But they didn't communicate with Birmingham the doctors that they'd given me all this pavilion. When I got to Birmingham, they thought I was drowned because there was. they did a CAT scan on me and there was no brain activity, no brain activity at all. I was nobody home. And everything was okay until I ran out of pavilion about uh, three hours later, and I started looking for my money in my pants. Then uh, the fight was on again.
2: Roush Fenway Racing driver Matt Kenseth. I remember it was in, we were in Talladega, and I remember after the race going to the hospital and seeing him. And uh, um, it was, he was—he was in rough shape. He was in really rough shape. I was, uh, you know, happy that he was able to, to come back from that because that was uh, that was a tough period of time for sure for uh, for the company. Jack Roush recovered from his injuries, but eight years later on July 27th, 2010 in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, a second plane crash struck the champion car owner.
0: I uh, was flying into the air show after they had just shut down the air show and opened it up for local traffic. The air, the runway that I was on that they lined me up to, to land on, they wanted me to, to make a base turn, which is a right degree turn, halfway down the runway. And I was driving my, flying my, my corporate jet. I didn't have another pilot with me, I had a passenger. And, uh, and I uh, I got lined up for the, for the landing and, and there was an airplane in my way. And I announced the fact that I was gonna have to go around because there was an airplane in my way and uh, they told me that, uh, that they be aware of a, a, a traffic. I could see two or three airplanes, and so they alarmed me to traffic, and uh, so I'm counting airplanes and looking for traffic, and I'm about uh, probably 30, 40 feet off the ground in the jet, and I stall one wing, which if I had my head not, if I had my head on the instruments and not been counting airplanes, worried about running over a Piper Cub that was in front of me, uh, I'd have been uh, I'd have been okay. As it turned out, they had two different frequencies they were using, the one frequency for departures and one for arrivals, and they'd line me up to, to land on top of the space that would be required for this Piper Cub to take off, except they'd given him instruction that I didn't hear that he should offset the runway as soon as he was airborne because there was a jet on his tail. Well, that was me, but I was uh, sure that I was going to have to fly through his flight path, and so I was trying to figure out how to get out of the area without running into another airplane and i stalled it and when the airplane wing stalled that's a flutter The fill the stutter flutter in the uh, yoke and then it the drops the wing when it dropped the wing i said okay i'm landing right to one side of the runway a little bit just off to the one side and i said i'm going to land right here i'm not going to add power if i would added power for the period of time that it would take the engines to spool up i i I was predisposed that I'd be a fireball, so I made, quick, made the decision I was going to land the airplane and uh, in the best conditions I could and arrest the, uh, the, uh, the wing dropping. So I stopped the rotation of the wing. I gave up altitude, a contact to the ground, and the airplane sliding across the ground, and there's no serious damage to the airplane. I've cleaned the landing gear off. I, thought to myself, I said to myself, well, I'll put this thing on a rollback truck and fix it because the fuselage is not damaged and I hit the end of a drainage ditch, and uh, the airplane went 20 feet in the air. It broke the imp- it broke the n- nose cone off the airplane or cracked it at the pressure vessel. It broke the empennage, the tail of the airplane. It broke down from the uh, acceleration head upwards, thrust me out of the seat, broke my back, took an eye out. Just. Made a mess of things, but I. They say that you're not. You, it's not a bad landing if you can walk out of it. So I actually I opened the door and walked out of the airplane.
2: In spite of losing an eye, Jack Roush returned to the track less than two weeks later at Michigan International Speedway. Jack Roush is back at the track today after suffering facial injuries in a private plane crash a month ago. Jack lost his left eye in that accident, and doctors have reconstructed much of the left side of his face. But Roush says he's without pain and proud of the way his race teams have performed in his absence.
0: We, we lead the organization by a process of, of consensus democracy, and uh, it's, uh, it's, just, it's just wonderful to watch it check. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not looking forward to being in the test case again to find out if we're ready to deal with adversity, but I was, uh, it was gratifying to find that uh, they didn't disagree.
2: On the next episode of MRN Presents, The Many Hats of Jack Roush, We'll look at the legacy of Jack Roush and the impact he's made on the sport of NASCAR. He gave people with big hearts
1: and big desires the opportunity to realize
2: their dreams, and he succeeded while doing so. Until then, I'm Woody Kane. Thanks for joining us. Today's program was a presentation of the Motor Racing Network with studios in Concord, North Carolina and Daytona Beach, Florida. The Many Hats of Jack Roush was written and produced by Rich Colbreth, Tyler Burnett, Alexa Henrian, and Brian Nelson. Any use of the accounts or descriptions contained in this broadcast must be with the express written permission of NASCAR and the Motor Racing Network.